go ahead and take your seats, and we're going to continue to worship the Lord through the proclamation of His Word. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, you can start making your way to Jeremiah 25. Uh, Jeremiah 25 is where we're going to be this morning, back in the book of Jeremiah. And I don't know about anyone else, I, I just found myself wildly encouraged to jump out of the book of Jeremiah for a week last week. And uh, even though the text we were in saw the church being persecuted, Peter imprisoned, and James being killed, it just felt more encouraging than what we've seen in the book of Jeremiah. But that, this is where we're at, and this is all God's word, and God has uh, his word for his people. Uh, and so we're in chapter 25 this morning, which is a massive pivot point uh, in the book, because we are moving from warning to judgment. And, and there, there's no shortage of movies and books and stories that bear the title Judgment Day. <laughs> Some of them are utterly ridiculous. Others span the spectrum of various degrees of compelling, but they all refer to this coming judgment, right? because there's this universal understanding that exists in all of humanity around judgment. And the text that we're in today, loved ones, is really going to walk us up to the edge of the cliff, to the precipice, to look over and to be able to see the judgment of God. Which, by the way, this really is the foreshadowing of what majority of what's left in the book of Jeremiah is all about. The rest of Jeremiah largely entails the judgment of God. We titled the series Warning, Judgment, and Hope because those are the three major pillars that run throughout this book. And so we are departing from the place of warning into the place of judgment. And so when we consider judgment, here's really, really what we're going to see in the text this morning, is that God persistently offers his word and will judge all who defy him. God persistently offers his word and will judge all who defy him. It is simple, it is clear, and it is the striking reality of God's judgment. And because this is true, I think we would do well right now before we go any further to humble ourselves before the Lord, to ask God to have his way uh, with us, uh, and for the Lord to accomplish his good purposes uh, by and through his word this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into this text. Oh, gracious and good Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, God, for you, for this day, for your word. Father, we're thankful that your word is going to speak your truth to your people. And so, Father, we pray that in this moment, that we would have a humility to hear, God, that the, the, the somber and sobering realities that are in front of us, God, that we would not push them away because they're hard. God, we would not try to push them away because we don't like it. But God, that we would hear, that we would see, that our hearts would be aligned and conformed by and through your word here this morning. Father, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area, and this morning, God, praying for Trinity in the marketplace, for Michael Kelshaw. Father, I'm so thankful for that dear brother and that dear friend, and we're praying for that church, God, that they would honor you, that they would hear from you, that they would follow you and believe you in the same way that we desire, to follow and honor and believe you in all things. So God, would you have your way with us now? We pray this in your name, and all God's people said, amen. All right, loved ones, title the message this morning is The Judgment of God. The judgment of God. I know you're all thrilled now, right, based on that title. Right? But again, this idea that God persistently offers his word and will judge all who defy him. 
Now, in fairness, much of the content of what we're going to see is going to feel very similar uh, to what we've seen thus far. Yet, this is the major pivot in the book. Uh, and so we're moving from warning to judgment. <clears throat> and so maybe it'll feel odd that we begin with this idea. Uh, but look at verses 1 through 7. What we see here is God's persistent pleading. This is God's persistent pleading. And you might be like, well, that's an interesting starting point if we're talking about judgment. We're talking about judgment, and yet God is pleading. Why is that? Well, look at your Bibles. Let me read verses 1 through 4 to get us started. This is the word of the Lord. It says this, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And all of a sudden, you're like, wait, wait, this is like right in the middle of Jeremiah's ministry. Yes, because Jeremiah does not order his book chronologically. He orders it thematically. Right? That, that's how the book is ordered. So you, you, we've seen things that come chronologically later before. We'll see other things that are earlier later, but he's ordering it based on theme, not chronology. Uh, let's continue. Verse 2, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Here's what he says. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. Now make note of two things that we see, particularly in verses 3 and 4 around God's persistent pleading. First of all, make note of this, that God persistently gives his word. Right, Jeremiah is saying, for 23 years, for 23 years, I've been bringing you God's word. I've been persistent. And this persistent, uh, persistence implies a handful of different things. This persistent implies the myriad of times that God has invited return from his people. It implies the forbearing patience of God uh, in the people's rebellion, and it implies God's relational nearness to a defiant people. God's word keeps coming. It's persistent in spite of their sin. God keeps giving his word. Now, I, let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. If it were up to you and I, we would have given up on Judah a long time ago, wouldn't we? And we would have quit on them long ago. And yet, here's what's so striking. Not only is God continuing to come to them, but, but this isn't even the end for God. God is going to continue to be persistent, and in fact, God's future persistence won't be seen in him sending more prophets. It's going to culminate in him sending who? He's going to send his son. He's going to send Jesus. Right In John 1, we're told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later, we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? God is going to go much further than he already has. In Jeremiah 25, not only has he given the people his word, he's actually given them himself. So God help us that we would hear and we would listen and we would respond. But what's the problem? They don't listen. That's also what we see in verse 3 and 4. We see our failure to listen to God's word. There's this repeated refrain, not only here in this text, but throughout the entirety of the book, that you don't listen to what God is saying. And that's an important reminder because when we get to judgment, no one can say, I, I wasn't warned of this. I didn't know this was going to happen. I didn't know this was coming. No, 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 no. God persistently sent his word. And there was a continual rejection of his word. So you are undoubtedly guilty. 
Now, this is not the only time in human history that the people rejected the word of the Lord. It actually happened to Jesus himself. Jesus himself came, and he was rejected. In fact, listen, of course, he knew it was going to happen. Listen to the insight that we have with respect to Jesus from John chapter 2. It says this of Jesus. It says, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That doesn't exactly sound like a ringing endorsement for humanity and that they're going to get it right. And what you find later in John's gospel is that Jesus, at the end of his public ministry, it says this, or really it actually says this about the people, though he, he, Jesus, had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes there from Isaiah 6, Right, part of Isaiah's commission where God says, they're not going to see, they're not going to hear, they're not going to listen, but you are to keep declaring the word. Loved ones, let us not be like the people in Jeremiah's day. Let us not be like the people in Jesus' day. But let us be people who will follow and listen and believe and actually hear what God is saying. So God has persistently sent his word. The people continually reject his word. Now, now the logical trajectory is, okay, here's where the hammer drops. And yet, what's actually on display is, God's mercy and grace. Look at verse 5. This is what God continues to say to his people over their decades of defiance. He says, turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. This is God's invitation to turn now. This is the invitation that God has repeatedly made to this defiant group of people. That after decades of defiance, God's still inviting return. Don't miss this. Oh, loved ones, don't miss this. That not even decades of defiance can deter God's grace and his mercy. Did you hear that? That's good news. Right? Not even decades of defiance can deter God's grace and God's mercy. Now, to be sure, a day of judgment's going to come, right? And in fact, it's about to come in Jeremiah's context. You can't defy forever. A time will come where God will make that offer no more, and he's going to move to judgment. But even in the moment of judgment, God is reminding his people of his repeated invitations to return to him. Let me try to illustrate this by using a New Testament account. In John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. You remember that in the upper room? Shortly before his death, he's washing the disciples' feet. But there's a fascinating note that John puts early in uh, John 13. In fact, in verse 2, he tells us this. Uh, before Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he says, that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. So this plot to betray Jesus, it's already at hand. It's already been put into motion. And yet, what does it tell us? It tells us that Jesus washed all of the disciples' feet. To include who? To include Judas, right? And, and, and certainly, John would have been like, hey, it was kind of weird when he didn't wash Judas's feet. Or maybe the disciples, you know, if they knew Judas was a traitor. They wouldn't have been surprised, but they were. He washes Judas' feet. Right? It, it, it's one final opportunity to return. What Jesus is doing there is akin to what God's doing in this moment here. He's saying, turn now. Come back now. And maybe, maybe you've been wandering for a season. Maybe you've been wandering for decades. Maybe you've been wandering for most of your life. God is graciously inviting you to return. Loved ones, even in your daily lives, any confession of sin, is an invitation to return to the Lord. So you got to ask yourself, are you, are you going to embrace God's invitation? Are you going to turn from your evil way 
and toward our gracious God. God invites us to turn now. And then notice finally in verse 6 and 7, around God's persistent pleading, we see God's call to worship him alone. But he says in verse 6, he says, Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Right? Our return should prompt an allegiance to God that we're to worship him and that we're to worship him alone. And so the, the question that bears to be asked is, what does he mean by worship? A lot of times when we think of worship, we think of singing songs. And we might include prayer. That's, that's certainly not wrong, but it's, it's definitely incomplete. Because notice even what God says in verse 6, that worship and service is equated with the work of their hands. That our heart and our actions are connected to each other. Right? The point is that you can't isolate worship from your life, and you can't isolate your life from your worship. They're connected with one another. That's why Jesus says, he who loves me is going to keep my commandments. There's a connection between the two of them. There's a connection between how we worship God and how we live our life. Now, the problem, look at verse 7, that you have not listened. The problem is we don't listen. So harm is going to come. Judgment is going to come, and it's warranted. This is God's persistent pleading. Let me just make one other note here before we move on. Don't miss the fact that God appeals, that God's appeal precedes his judgment. God's appeal will always precede his judgment. God may be appealing to even some of you right now this very moment, and it precedes a coming judgment that will come if you defy his invitation, because God will deal with sin, and that's what the rest of the chapter deals with in unflinching form. So notice where it moves, starting here in verse 8, we see God's plan. This is God's plan for judgment. So let's just get right to the finish line, right out of the gate. Here it is. God's judgment will fall on every person who defies him. Did you hear that? God's judgment will fall on every single person who defies him. There, are, there is no exceptions. There's no exemptions. There's no out clauses for any of us. Look at your Bibles. Here's what it says. Verse 8. I'm going to read 8 through 14. God says this, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, that's weird, we'll come back to that in a few moments, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I'll devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, moreover I will banish from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride the grinding and the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I'll bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations, for many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. God's saying it's judgment time. It's time. And there are three distinct features with relation to God's plan for judgment that emerge in this section. And Jeremiah is going to continue to return to those themes or those features uh, throughout the entirety of the chapter. 
So we want to make sure we drill down and we understand what those, those features are so that we can see them as they continue to unfold over the rest of the chapter. So we'll drill down on them and spend some time looking at them in a few different ways. Uh, and, then, and then I'll let the rest of the chapter unfold. But here, make note of these three features. Here's the first in verse 8 and 9, that God's judgment is comprehensive in scope. That it's comprehensive in scope. So he says, I'm going to bring against this land and the inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. Right? So it's coming to Judah. It's coming to all the nations around Judah. And you're like, well, that's not comprehensive. Well, you haven't read the rest of the chapter. Because in verses 17 to 26, he's literally going to name all the rest of the world. There's a universal scope of God's judgment. Simply put, all who defy God's word will be subjected to God's judgment and wrath. Those who believe God's word are the only ones who are going to be spared from God's judgment and wrath. You are either with King Jesus or you are opposed to King Jesus. You are in or you are out. There's, there's no middle ground. There's, there's no neutral. There's no spiritual Switzerland. Right? There's no third option. You're going to be saved or you're going to be judged. It's comprehensive. Not only is it comprehensive in scope, look, it actually begins at the verse 9. I put 10 and 11. It actually begins in verse 9. We see God's judgment is comprehensive in impact. Right? Note, the, note the impact of God's judgment. Right? God's going to, I'll devote them to destruction at the end of verse 9 and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Verse 10, I'll banish from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstone, and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. See, the impact is comprehensive. Nothing is, is, is outside or untouched by God's judgment. The voices and the noises of joy are going to be replaced by miserable silence. God is going to banish the voice of mirth, which is just another word for joy. He's going to banish the voice of gladness. You're not going to hear from the brides or the bridegrooms. You're not going to hear the grinding of, of, of grinding out various grains for bread. The lamp is going to go out. Now, when you consider all those different images and those pictures and what that represents, it's comprehensive. There's no joy. There's no gladness. There's no relationship. There's no sustenance. There's no light. It's total darkness. Like, what isn't touched by this? Everything is impacted by this. See, the comprehensive impact of judgment is identical or akin to the comprehensive impact of sin. Like, the curse of sin has touched everything, has it not? Like, what hasn't been marred by sin? About a month ago, we were out on a hike. My family was out on a hike, and we came across this raspberry patch and these ripe raspberries on, uh, you know, in this patch. And so we started picking all of them and eating them. And man, I got to tell you, they were good. They were really, really good. And I can't remember what, what one of the kids were like, man, could these taste any better? And I think another one of my kids were like, dad, does, does, does sin impact how food tastes? And in that moment, I'm like, probably. It probably does. Whether the fruit itself isn't as tasty as it's supposed to be, whether our, our taste buds have been compromised and we don't, we don't fully get to experience the, the goodness of that food. And then, of course, you know, my mind starts exploding. I'm like, man, everything I even think is good, it's compromised. Like, bacon can get better. It's true, right? And it just made me excited about the feast 
that are coming, coming in heaven. But the point being, the point being, it's comprehensive in impact. It, it, it touches everything. Loved ones, God's judgment is similar. It will comprehensively impact everything. There will be no limit, no restraining, no compartmentalizing God's judgment. And then thirdly, we see this third feature in verse 11 and 12, that God's judgment is a clearly defined period of time. Right, two different times. He says 70 years. You're going to be there 70 years. God clearly defines the time of his judgment, 70 years of exile. It's an explicitly defined period of time. Now, these features are foreshadowing a far more serious judgment that will come for all people. These are the same features that will come at the final judgment. These features are synonymous with what we see of hell. Now, hell is, let's just be honest, right? Hell is not a doctrine that people get real excited for, right? No one is like, oh, man, I really hope we talk about hell this morning. I love that doctrine. That's just not how we operate. And yet, it's addressed throughout the entirety of the Scriptures, and it's important in understanding God's purposes and His plan. Right? So, so regardless of where you find yourself in the Bible, whether it's Matthew 25 and sheep and goats or Lazarus or Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the, the myriad of texts that we find in Revelation, a variety of other places, right? all of which, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the biblical doctrine of hell. And what I want you to be able to notice, loved ones, is these features that God is unfolding here correspond directly to the same features that we see with respect to hell. Right, let's just walk through them here for a moment. First of all, comprehensive in scope. Right, this is true of hell. Those who defy God's word, those who don't believe what God has said, are subjected to God's wrath, period. Period. Right, without exception. It is only those who fully trust and fully believe what God says that are spared. And if you want an image or you want a depiction, probably the clearest image I can come up with is actually what we find back in Exodus 12 with the first Passover. Remember what God said? He said, hey, slaughter a lamb and let the blood of the lamb cover the doorpost. And the angel of death moved through. And those who were sheltered under the blood were spared. Those who were not sheltered under the blood fell under judgment and wrath. And it's the same today. If you live under the shed blood of Jesus, you're going to be spared. If not, you're going to fall under judgment. There's no other way to be reconciled to God. Jesus himself said this. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There's no other way. Right? Acts 4, the apostles say, there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. That's it. There's no other way. The scope of judgment is comprehensive. The impact of judgment, right? This passage represents the complete and total ceasing of all that is good, all that is joyful, all that is related to life. And in Luke 16, that story of the rich man and Lazarus, hell is depicted as a place of torment. Do you know why hell is depicted as a place of torment? Because it is the complete and total absence of the person of God. See, everything is marred apart from him. How many of you are familiar with the, the, the concept of common grace? Show of hands, common grace. I know what you're talking about. Okay, here, common grace, uh, common grace is, is essentially God's uh, innumerable blessings that are not a part of salvation. 
So these are blessings that fall both on believer and non-believer. So this, this, this past week, like some of those beautiful fall days, like believers and non-believers alike enjoyed that. The rain that we got last week, believers and non-believers alike benefited from that. See, God's common grace isn't just that as believers we get all the benefits and non-believers get nothing. No, in this world, this world is marred and broken in so many different ways, and yet what we often fail to account for is God's common grace in this world. It's going to become clear in judgment because not only is the person of God and the presence of God removed, but even God's common grace is removed. And so all you're left with is what is utterly evil and broken. So the impact no doubt, will be comprehensive. And then thirdly, we see this this defined period of time. Now, God also defines the period of time for hell, except it's not a matter of decades, it's eternal. And the phrases in the Bible that we see over and over again is eternal punishment, eternal torment. Those are hard to ignore. You go to a text like Matthew 25, and it speaks, it uses this term, or this phrase, eternal punishment, and it uses that phrase multiple times. And at the end of that, that parable of the sheep and goats, in the same sentence, Jesus said, these are off to eternal punishment, and these are off to eternal life. Now, you and I would never say, well, that eternal life, that, that's metaphoric, and it just means a long time. He doesn't actually mean, no, we'd be like, no, nah, that's eternal. Well, it's the same word, right? This can't be eternal for life, but only temporary in terms of death defined. This is sobering, isn't it? This is a sobering doctrine. It's not a trifling matter. It's not something to be flippant about. Let me just say this. Of when our lives here, it's short. It doesn't always feel short because our perspective is skewed. We we have a one-sided perspective at this point. All we know is this life. 300 years from now, you're going to think back on this life and you'll be like, yeah, this is kind of brief. A thousand years from now, you're going to go, it's pretty short. 10,000 years from now, you're like, oh, I get that vapor mist imagery that the Bible talks about, right? It's going to be short, right? And so when we consider eternity, heaven and hell has a great way of bringing sharp clarity to how we think about these things and how we think about our life. Actually, let me just give us a few, few ways to think about this. When you, when you think about eternity or you think through the lens of eternity, first of all, I want you to just consider gospel witness. Right? Think about sharing the gospel. Because when you think about it through the lens of eternity, it brings a sharpness to, to the excuses and fears that so often compromise our gospel witness. Well, you know, they're not going to like me. They're going to think I'm weird. They're going to reject me. Those tend to be the things that push us away from sharing the gospel. You think about it through the lens of eternity, like, I don't care. And it's short and it's brief, and this is serious. Or you think about this world through the lens of eternity, and you start seeing the world for what it is. Right? You see the brevity and the futility of so many of our pursuits and our endeavors. It brings clarity to what matters in this life and what doesn't matter in this life. Pastorally, Pastorally, one of my roles is I do weddings and I do funerals. And people always assume, I bet weddings are fun and funerals are miserable. I'd rather do a funeral than a wedding any day. And this is why right here, 
Because, he, see, here's what a funeral does. A funeral gives us perspective of what this life really is and how short it is. See, at a wedding, I'm just the guy who stands in the way of the party. At a funeral, every single person in the room is considering their own mortality. It's why parents always wrestle with young kids. Should I bring them? Should I not? I don't know that I want to have this conversation yet. They know you can't go to a funeral and not be confronted with our own mortality. So, loved ones, let's, let's let God's word bring incredible clarity and, and, and the reality of judgment, the reality of eternity, help bring clarity to our life. Let it help us to see with eternal precision and eternal focus and that we would live accordingly. Now, one other note before we move to the final section. I want to go back here to verse 9 because it says this weird thing about Nebuchadnezzar. It says, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and then God calls him my servant. <laughs> Wait. That, that wicked king who, who's going to destroy Judah and he's going to take God's people. Like, how is that guy God's servant? Well, what's going? What, what does he mean by that? Well, let me give you a few possible scenarios as to what this may mean. First of all, it may be that Nebuchadnezzar will listen to what God says and his people don't listen to him. It could be that this is in line with what we see in Proverbs 21, right? The king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wills. It may be something like that, that God uses whoever he wants to do whatever he desires or whatever he purposes. It could be prophetic of what we'll see in Daniel chapter 4, where this same Nebuchadnezzar is going to be humbled and in his humility seemingly repents of his, of his arrogance and turns to the Lord. It could be a combination of any of those. It might be none of those. But here's what is clear about what's going on in verse 9. Don't miss this. What God is telling us is that even the world's most powerful leaders will function as nothing more as subjects and subordinates who serve God's purposes. You hear that? That even the world's most powerful leaders will serve as nothing more than a subject and a subordinate who serves God's purposes. This is a statement about the power of God and that he will use even wicked leaders to accomplish his sovereign purposes. I wish there was something globally that I could apply this to, but there's not, so we'll just move on. Yeah, right. We apply this all over the place. And so here's why this is important, because loved ones, this word right here from God, this should change and reform how you think about the news and how you think about current events. You don't have to fear any leader. You don't have to fear any leader. God's using them to accomplish his sovereign purposes. It may be that God's sovereign purpose might be for us to suffer. It may be that we're to be persecuted. It might even mean that we're to die. But it doesn't matter who's in office. No one's going to derail the train of God's sovereignty. You don't have to fear any leaders. And in fact, what you can do is you can trust God is going to use all of this for his glory. I guarantee you, everyone in Israel was looking at the exile going, I, I, don't, I don't know how God's going to use this. Like, I, I don't know how God could possibly use this for his glory. But in proper time, God made it clear, did he not? So, loved ones, I'm just telling you, as you look out at the world today, I'm just telling you, watch and wait. I promise you, God will make it clear someday. God will make it clear that he's using all of this for his glory. It might be difficult for us to see. I don't know how God's doing it. No, no, he, he'll use it for his glory. And so we can watch, and we can witness, and we can observe all that's going on around us, and we can watch with an eye towards God's purposes. 
which is probably not how most of us are watching the news right now, but it should be. This is God's plan of judgment. It's comprehensive in scope. It's comprehensive in impact. And it's clearly defined in its time, which leads into this final portion. And we see God's picture of judgment. God's picture of judgment. Now, in this picture, we're going to see God's plan playing out over and over and over again uh, throughout verses 15 through 38. We're going to see the scope. We're going to see the impact. I not see the time as much, but those other two show up on repeat. And so God gives this, this, this illustration of a cup of wine. Look at verse 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. Right? So he, he starts with this, this cup, the, the, this image, this picture, and, and, and this, this illustration moves immediately to the judgment of all the nations. So I, I, wanna, I wanna run with that. We'll come back to the cup in a moment, but I wanna start here in verse 17 because what we see from verse 17 to the end of the chapter is God's judgment on all nations. It's God's judgment on all nations. Now, 17 to 29, uh, we see God's picture. Right? It's, it's using this wine cup metaphor, 30 to 38 is God's prophecy of judgment, but they are all feeding and informing one another. Because starting in verse 17, here's what he says. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand, and I made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. In verse 18, it's Jerusalem and Judah. Verse 19, it's Egypt. Uh, and then verse 20, it's Uz and the Philistines, Edom, Moab, Amnon, Tyre, Sidon, the coastland, Dedon, Tema, Buzz, Arabia, the mixed tribes, Zimri, Elam, Media, the kings of the north. And then in verse 26, he does this summary statement where he says, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world are on the face of the earth. And then at the end of 26, he tells us Babylon as well is going to drink of it. It's comprehensive in scope. No nation is immune. No nation's getting away. No nation is out of this. In fact, in these uh, 10 verses, the word all shows up 15 different times. You think he's driving a point? You better believe he's driving a point. God is pronouncing judgment on all nations, and not even God's people are immune. It is comprehensive. And then when you get to verse 27, right, not, not only is it comprehensive in scope, but now in verse 27, we see how it's comprehensive in impact. He says, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, drink and be drunk. Vomit and fall and rise no more because of the sword that I'm sending among you. It's like, man, you, you, you're going to suffer. You're, you're going to fall. You're not going to rise back up. And then starting in verse 30, this prophecy, he says, you therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them. And he just picks up on this scope and impact. It continues to unfold. Verse 31, or sorry, verse 30, the Lord will roar from on high. Verse 31, the clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. Now look at what it says next. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. There's the pivot. We're done with warning. It's time for judgment. Verse 32, he's going to go. He's going to behold disasters going forth from nation to nation. Verse 33, and those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. There's the scope. Everyone's under this. Now look at the back half of verse 33. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be dung on the surface of the ground. There's the impact. Verse 34, the slaughter and dispersion have come. Verse 35, there's no refuge and no escape. 
Verse 36, the Lord is going to lay waste the pasture. Verse 37, the folds are going to be devastated. Verse 38, like a lion, he's left his lair. God's rolling out like a roaring lion. This is sentencing day. Like in a court case, you have the verdict, innocent, guilty. They've been declared guilty, and then you come back for sentencing. That's what God's doing here. He's handing down the sentence. Here is your punishment. This is God's judgment on all the nations. Not, 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 not only do we see the, 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 the impact, but there's a forcefulness to this that, that, that no one can escape. Go back to verse 28. It says, and if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at a city that is called by my name, and shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished. For I'm summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. He's like, no, no, you don't get to refuse. You're going to drink this. And let's not pretend that these are two equal peers who are in disagreement. You have almighty God and not even remotely mighty people. It's an entirely imbalanced disagreement. I, I don't know why this is what I thought about when I thought about this scene, but um, if, if you have ever been the parent of a toddler, then you know the toddler veggie showdown that happens in every household, right? That at some dinner time, that toddler refuses to eat their veggies or really any food for that matter, depending on the child. And there's that particular moment that night where like, we're going to battle it out. And really, it's not even about the food, is it? It's about obedience. That's ultimately what it comes down to. And so I can remember that particular night in the McDonald household, right? We have twins. Thankfully, it was only one of them that night, and I can't even remember which twin it was. But I can remember thinking, you are two years old and sitting in a high chair. I am a grown man. You might not eat your vegetables, but don't you ever think for a moment, I'm not entirely in control of this situation. Because you can't get out of that chair until I allow you to get out of that chair. And so for 90 minutes, they just sat there, obstinately not eating it. And I remember my mind thinking, I don't care if you're sitting there all night. I'm winning this, right? What's happening in Jeremiah is that times 10 trillion. God has all the power. We have none of the power. He's like, I don't care if you want to drink it. This isn't optional. It's not voluntary. I've got all the power. You, you have none. It's a powerful word, and it's equally poignant for us today because, loved ones, God's final and ultimate judgment is going to come whether you like it or not, whether you want it or not, or whether you believe it or not. God's word is unmistakably clear about this. Hebrews 9 tells us that it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. 2 Corinthians 5 picks up on this all language that Jeremiah uses when he says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Right, Rob read from us out of Revelation 20, this inescapable reality of the great white throne judgment. God's judgment will come to all nations and all people. It's coming. Now, Jeremiah's a book isn't exactly full of chipper, feel-good messages. Uh, but this, this, this may be the most depressing moment in the book to date. And yet I would argue there's an incredible word of hope embedded right in the middle of this. Because this passage at face value leaves the entirety of mankind subjected 
to, the coming, to, to God's coming judgment and wrath, which, by the way, would be true for every single one of us had God not intervened on our behalf. Let me take you back to the image of the cup. Go back to verse 15 and 16. Because what we've seen in 17 to 38 is God's judgment on the nations. Here's what I'm going to argue is happening in verse 15 and 16. Is that God is foreshadowing his judgment on his son. This is God's judgment on his son. It's because the symbol of wrath, right? He tells us the symbol of wrath, the wine cup, that's given to all the nations. Well, one day, it's not going to be given to the nations. And it's not going to be given to the people. Who's it going to be given to? It's going to be given to Christ. See, loved ones, what we have to understand is that the cup is symbolic with God's judgment. And it plays throughout the entirety of the Bible. In fact, the origins for this probably originate all the way back in Numbers 5. And in the law, uh, there was this test for adultery. And, and if someone thought that a, that, that a woman had been adulterous, remember she would have to drink the water of bitterness. And if her body responded a particular way, they would know that she was guilty. And if it, she didn't respond a particular way, they would know that she was not guilty. But then that, that, that imagery gets picked up and employed all over the place in both Old and New Testament. Jeremiah, when he writes in Lamentation, says, to you the cup shall pass. In Habakkuk 2, we're told that the cup in the Lord's right hand shall come to you. Listen to what Jeremiah, or Isaiah says in Isaiah 51. He says, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk to the dregs the cup of the bowl, the cup of staggering. And so it comes to the people throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it's not going to be drunk by the people. Oh, praise God, it's not drunk by us. It's going to be drunk by Jesus. Because these verses speak clearly about judgment. And it's not that judgment goes away. It's not that judgment ceases to happen. It's that the recipient of the judgment changes. The cup gets passed, so to speak. Jesus, in Mark 10, right after he uh, foretells his death a third time, James and John come up and say some of the dumbest things uttered anywhere in the Bible, right? And they're like, hey, when you come in glory, who gets to sit on, on your right hand and on your left? And what's the first thing Jesus says to them? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Jesus in Mark 14, when he's instituting the Lord's table, is going to have bread and what? A cup. And what does that cup represent? It represents his shed blood for sinners. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is going to say to God, remove this cup if you can. But he knows that God can't, or that, that, that God can't remove the cup from him because it would then fall upon us. And so he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Loved ones, God's judgment is ultimately going to fall upon the Son. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. That we're not under the crushing weight of God's judgment because Jesus has willingly drank the cup in our place. And we intentionally delayed getting to this point because I think from time to time it is good for us to sit in the tension of our sin and the judgment and wrath and hell that we so rightfully deserve and yet we will not experience because what, what Christ has done for us. Because it lets us appreciate Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in our place. And so for us, the, the proper response is that we consider 
the gravity of our sin, the depths of our evil, and the judgment and the wrath that should be our destiny. We marvel at Jesus' sacrifice, that he drinks the cup that we deserve, that he pursues rebels, and he restores us as sons and daughters. And then by God's grace, let us be grateful for an infinitely holy Lord who is entirely compassionate to give himself in our place. Praise God that God's judgment falls to his son and not simply to you and I. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful. Father, we are so thankful for your sacrifice in our place. Father, we pray that, God, that you would confront our sin. God, that we would be honest about our sin. That there would be clarity and reality of our sinfulness. And, God, in seeing that, oh, that we would revel marvel and so deeply appreciate the shed blood of Jesus that spares us from the judgment and wrath that we deserve and instead reconciles us back to you, restores us unto you. That makes us sons and daughters. God, would you help us to believe this by faith, to trust this by faith in you, to hold fast to what you have declared in your word. God, would we believe what you have said? Would we listen to your truth? And would we do so for your glory? We pray this in your name. Amen.